You're listening to The Lid Is On. I'm Connor Lennon. On today's episode, we're returning to the theme of water and another session recorded live at the UN Water Conference, which took place at UN headquarters in New York at the end of March. This session took place on World Meteorological Day, the 23rd of March. This year's theme was the future of weather, climate and water. I spoke to Pateri Talas, Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization, Lindsay Bloger, former president of the World Youth Parliament for Water, and Martin van Alst, director of the Dutch Royal Meteorological Institute, about the changes that societies need to make in order to cope with the changing climate in the coming years. I started by asking Ms. Bloger more about the Youth Parliament for Water and how young people are raising awareness about water-related issues. The World Youth Parliament for Water has a network uh, all over the world. I think now, since my presidency, there's actually 50 chapters around the world. And um, another initiative I'd like to to mention is the Global Youth Movement for Water, which is collected here for the conference. This included nearly 300 youth organizations from around the world specific to water and climate. And we organize ourselves to create five key messages to to take to the conference and I think that was kind of quite a nice initiative Um, if you can imagine 300 youth organizations from around the world so representative of all different all the different regions of the world coming here to the conference and I think we have about um, three to four hundred young people uh, this week here. And where did your interest in this area come from where was it sparked? In the the network? Well no well water in general how did you get involved were you from a particularly dry area is that where you grew up um so i'm from oregon which is actually very rainy place quite wet yes (laughs) yeah but it was during my studies i when i was trying to understand what i wanted to study this was you know in 2010 when i started my undergrad i was exploring different topics and the the issues that i was learning about in my environmental science class back back a long time ago, um, was highlighting food security and water security issues. And it was actually then that I decided that I wanted to be involved in this. I wanted to help provide clean water to those in developing countries. And actually, after my undergrad experience, I, I went to go uh, and kind of see what that looked like by taking some volunteer experience in Nicaragua. And is that the focus of your consultancy as well? My consultancy is now focused on stakeholder engagement in the water sector, helping academics, state agencies, intergovernmental agencies, incorporating um, different voices into decision-making and making sure um, that those are implemented into planning processes. That started from my youth engagement experience and now has um, kind of leveled up from there, and that's why I started my, my business in this stakeholder engagement area. Now, our third expert on the panel is Martin van Alst. Uh, thanks for being with us. Your country, Martin, is the co-host of the UN Water Conference. Why, in particular, did the Netherlands want to take on this role? Well, if we hadn't managed water, large parts of the Netherlands probably wouldn't exist at all, right? Large parts of our country are below sea level. So there's a lot of experience managing that water. Uh, and we're feeling the rising risks as well. Um, and, and I think also feeling the complexity of managing those risks together. So also for the Netherlands, the initial concern with the changing climate was just the gradually rising sea levels, right? And we imagined it as a, a predictable and also very long-term problem. So we would raise our dikes a little if we saw that the sea levels would rise a little. But then quite quickly, we saw that it was also going to be more extreme precipitation in the delta that flows into our country, all those rivers. 
So instead of just raising the dikes, we actually need to create space for those bulks of water coming into the country. So, and that's actually in a very densely populated country, something you need to negotiate together, right? It's something that you can't just decide top down. It's something communities need to understand and need to create recreational space that can absorb the water and be nice when there's not a flood. And we thought of ourselves already having a lot of good experiences to share with the world, and we do. But in recent years, we've seen our own vulnerability as well, particularly with a couple of years of drought. Whereas we thought of ourselves as a very wet country having to manage excess water, we've suddenly have had a couple of years where we've actually struggled to have enough water and had to allocate water between different groups. So not enough water in the rivers to transport critical goods up the Rhine, but at the same time, farmers needing the water to, to water their plants. So difficult choices and a reality where we basically can't have it all. So I think what the intention with this conference is, is to highlight how water is so critical to so many of our systems, and we need to have better decision-making using the knowledge we have, but particularly navigating those trade-offs with all those actors in society. Yeah, fingers and dikes won't work anymore. I mean, but you are a wealthy country. You say you have all these problems, but, you know, you do have your developed economy. You said you have lessons that can be shared with developing countries. What kind of lessons can you share? Well, I want to be humble here. I think there's lessons to be shared, but also lessons to be learned. Uh, we're building what, um, in a, a scientific terms, and this is sort of conversations we could have forever, um, a, a development towards what's called impact-based forecasting. So instead of forecasting millimeters of rainfall, we're trying to forecast the impacts of whatever comes, up, comes at us from the ocean or the atmosphere. And then we're trying to use that for actions. And that is, I think, what the critical development is that's happening in many countries and where we need to co-develop. The second thing that is really critical there, and I think we need to work together, is to turn those, that forecast information into action. And that requires both planning to be ready to act on the forecast when it arrives, it sometimes also requires improvisation. And that's actually something where a very well-organized, very well-planned like, country like the Netherlands sometimes struggles. You know, if we get surprised, and we get surprised more often with the extreme weather that's coming our way, are we ready to improvise at that moment? Are we ready to, to manage crises at that point? Well, talking about the future, that's the theme of this year, isn't it, Mr. Talas? Uh, what does the future look like to you? you? This future, whether it's water or weather or climate in particular, I mean, your organization puts out many reports. Many of them are quite scary to look at. So are you scared? Uh, actually, we, have, we are the, the founding father of IPCC and the host uh, agency of IPCC. And IPCC just uh, published its most recent report uh, uh, some days ago. And uh, they, they were estimating what may happen in the future. And, and our, our choices are between... A light gray future and, and dark gray future. Uh, we are not uh, supposed to see black future, so we, we are not uh, supposed to see dying out of uh, mankind or biosphere because of climate change. But it's clearly shown that uh, the, the more we can limit the warming and, 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 and impacts on, on water cycle and so forth, the better for the welfare of mankind, uh, better for the global economy, and also better for the for the biosphere. And uh, and, and the, the bad news is that this negative trend in weather patterns will continue until 2060s, independent of our success in, in mitigation. And thereafter, we could uh, phase out this negative trend. And one trend that we have already lost is uh, melting of glaciers and sea level rise. That's uh, because the carbon dioxide is, uh, concentration is already 
so high that this is supposed to continue even for the coming thousands of years. So that's that's bad news, but uh, but we are not uh, predicting the end of the world. Uh, there are some stories in the media and the social media that that's that's going to happen, but uh, but it's it's important that we uh, we uh, enhance our ambition level of uh, of climate mitigation to reduce the consumption of uh, fossil fuels, uh, and the sooner we do it, uh, the better for the for the future generations. Well, Lindsay, when, it, when it, you go to these international youth events, what's the overwhelming take on the, the kind of things that Mr. Talas was just saying? Are people angry? Are they, are they hopeful or fearful? What's, what's the main attitude that comes out? I would say a mix. And I would start by saying there is a general sense of urgency from our, our, my generation that we need to be taking action. So there's, that's definitely motivated by a fear. But then I would also say that there's a strong motivation to come up with new solutions, new out-of-the-box thinkings, things from entrepreneurs, things from engineers. I think there's a strong motivation to tackle these issues from my generation. Uh, and the same thing for the Netherlands. I mean, the Netherlands, from what you were saying, things could be very dicey indeed in the years to come. But uh, is there a more solutions-oriented approach? Or, again, are people generally fearful about what's to come? I, I mean, we're feeling the consequences already. So this is no longer about what is to come in a potential future. These are things that we're experiencing already, right? It's, and, and the question is, how bad are we going to let it get? But also, how do we manage what's coming our way? And we can do a lot better um, on all those fronts. So I think the IPCC report you were pointing to is, on the one hand, a very clear warning if we don't act what might come our way. But also, uh, I think the Secretary General called it like a survival guide there's lots of practical things that we can do. There's an immense amount of, of energy around on the energy transition, but also how we adapt to the changing risks. And the early warning systems for all initiative that you've been promoting here, um, Mr. Talas, is, is one strong example. If we just ensure everyone gets the right warnings when bad things come our way, that allows us to act in advance. And that, I think that's the more general message, whether it's about the energy transition, about long-term adaptation, or being ready for the next extreme weather event, it's so much better to act early than to wait for things to happen. And it could make a difference to, to millions of people in the future. And one more thing I wanted to ask you. You used to work for the Red Cross, I think, until fairly recently. So you've seen firsthand the effect that floods, natural hazards have on real people's lives. Can you just describe the kind of things that you saw when you had the particularly bad floods uh, some two years ago? Yeah, so the Netherlands actually escaped the worst consequences if you compare it to Germany and Belgium, where hundreds of people died in the heart of Europe. I mean, there's been this sort of mental image of climate change both being far away, uh, and uh, so far away in time and far away in place in many of the richer countries where the emissions have been highest historically. What we've seen is that it's, now, it's happening now, and it's happening very close to home. So that has been a wake-up call. Um, it allows us to have also as scientists a different conversation with people that need to make decisions in their own lives and also politicians that need to make decisions for all of us. Uh, and that, that gives us hope to some extent. Um, I would also come back to your earlier point. The Netherlands to some extent has the ability to do so. So, I mean, I am very fortunate to lead a very strong meteorological service with fantastic capacity to indeed provide those really good warnings. And we're working better with all kinds of actors in society to make sure that they're put into action. We know that information is not available around the world. And one reason for this water conference is to make sure we have those conversations about how we up those levels everywhere. 
and we know that's needed for the Netherlands in the end also because the climate problem that is coming our way will require a solution on all fronts. So we need everyone to reduce their emissions compared to a business-as-usual path. And the developing countries are going to be the ones growing their economies the fastest. If they grow it in the similar way that we've done, climate change will get to very high levels and will be in deep trouble with the extremes. So, but they are not interested primarily in constraining their economic growth if they've got all these problems also coming their way. So I think it's fair that there is a question also, how can the world stand together to adapt to climate change and to cope with the extremes that are already happening? And that's again where investments like the Early Warning Systems for All initiative are so critical. Well, we just have a few minutes left. So first of all, I'm just going to see if we have any questions from the audience here. Raise your hand if you have a question. And if not, I have one more question for everyone. What kind of water future do you want to see? Start with you, Lindsay. Mm, I like this question. <laughs> I would say one where we are really cooperating, and I, when I say cooperation, I'm thinking of transboundary issues, and that we're able to have hard conversations with people that we don't agree with at the table. Um, I would say I've been pushing for some of those conversations here that I didn't think I would have to push so hard for, and that would be a big win for me. Good answer. More transparency cooperation. Mr. Tellus. My dream is that we could still be able to reach this 1.5 degrees warming, and then we would have the most mild uh, negative impacts on, on, on distribution of uh, rainfall amounts worldwide and also the soil moisture. So that's, uh, I think that's, that, that's the... That should be the ambition, number one. Keeping 1.5 alive. And finally, Mr. Van Els. Maybe I'll go for a more conceptual one, given that we've had these two already. So I think what would be really great is we would value water in the right way. So one of the discussions here has also been about the economics of water and whether we're, we're appreciating water for the value that it has to all of us in our daily lives. I mean, imagine not having a glass of water to drink in the morning, for instance. And we're not appreciating it and, and factoring in what it means to us, whether or not we have clean water available, sometimes whether, when there's too much water, how much it could hurt us if we don't act in advance. So making sure that that gets integrated into lots of our decision making in agriculture, in infrastructure design, in, in all kinds of businesses. I think if we would only value water more for what it's worth to us, lots of things would fall in the right place, including staying below 1.5 degrees. It's a more value on water. Great answers, everyone. Thank you very much. Terry Tallis, Martin van Alst and Lindsay Blodgett. You've been listening to The Lid Is On. This episode was recorded live as one of the SDG Media Zone sessions at the UN Water Conference, which took place between the 22nd and 24th of March. To watch this and all of the sessions, just search for SDG Media Zone and follow the links.